Good to be here with everyone today. I'm Jennifer Richmond, one of the teaching pastors here at La Mirada Church. And I'm really glad you guys are all here joining us. It's a great day. Welcome back, Pastor Joe and family and bears and all the things. <laughs> Lions and tigers and wolves. Foxes next. All right. <laughs> well, today we come to the halfway point in our study through the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's not just a halfway point. Um, it's actually a turning point. Um, before this moment, Jesus has hinted about what is to come, but from this moment on, Jesus gives a clear announcement about his death and his resurrection. I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And while you're getting there, I just want to give a shout out to Diana and our youth. <laughs> um, Pastor Joe and I are real excited about the things we're seeing in the youth ministry. Um, what sets Christianity apart from other faiths is a question that they have been working on answering over the last several weeks. And their Sunday school youth groups, they've been learning about uh, world religions, uh, worldviews, and religions like uh, Islam, uh, Christian science, Jehovah's Witness, even Satanism and atheism. Uh, among all the world religions, with all their differences, there's something important they have in common, and that's Jesus, actually. <laughs> Every world religion addresses the identity of Jesus. Islam teaches Jesus was a prophet of Allah and a wise teacher. Uh, Hinduism teaches he was a holy man and a supreme example of self-realization. Buddhism also teaches Jesus was a holy man. New Age beliefs hold that Jesus was an enlightened man. In fact, all religions, to some degree, answer the question, who was Jesus? And their answers have this in common. He was a wise, compassionate, prophet, a supreme example of love and living a, light, a right life. So, was Jesus wise? Yes. Was he compassionate? Yes. Was he a prophet? Was he an example of love and living right? Yes and yes to all the above. And what should make us stop and think is that no one is creating a religion defining who Muhammad was or Buddha or Krishna. There's something unique in who Jesus was and the obsession that the world has with him should make us wonder, who is Jesus? And getting it right about who Jesus is makes a difference. And the answer will make a difference for how you live today, and more importantly, how you live forever in eternity. So yeah, it's important that we get this right. So let's take a look at Mark 8, beginning in verse 27. Uh, the disciples and Jesus have left the town of Bethsaida, where Jesus had healed a blind man after he fed another massive group of hungry people. And they're, they're heading north through the foothills. In verse 27, they went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. What do we always say are the three rules about understanding the Bible? Context, context, context. Aren't you proud? They did good. They did good. <laughs> um, and in this case, that context is like the law of real estate. Location, location, location. Understanding this area, Caesarea Philippi, is important to the context about what is going to happen here. In fact, it's so important, I think you're going to want to mark it in your Bible on the map. 
right? Caesarea Philippi is as far north from Jerusalem as you can travel and still be in Israel. It's significant then that Jesus walks with his disciples all the way up to this point. Caesarea Philippi was a pagan city. It was built by a son of Herod the Great. Um, it, it was at the base of the highest peak in the region, Mount Hermon. You can see this uh, on the slide here. Um, what's the best commentary on the New Testament? Ah, the Old Testament, exactly. If you want to understand the history of an area in the Bible, it is really helpful to go back and see what happened there. And interestingly, this area is hot with Old Testament action. Do you remember that infamous passage about the spies and how they were checking out the land before heading into Canaan? This area at that time was called Bashan. And the Israelites were afraid, if you remember, to take part of that land because there were these Nephilim there. They were demonic beings who lived in that region. And hundreds of years later, Israel's own king, Jeroboam, set up a golden calf to worship Baal there. Pagan worship continued to this day, and in Jesus' time, there were temples, and there were shrines, and they were carved into the cliffs. You can see them there to this day. Uh, there was a, a grotto, a worship area, um, to the Grotto of Pan, it's called. It was, he was a fertility god. And uh, the cliff that you're seeing here is known as the Rock of the Gods because idols and statues of gods and little goddesses were placed into the openings cut out into the rock. So for the disciples, this is probably farther than they've ever traveled, and that sets the stage because Jesus is preparing them to travel even farther. Imagine them walking then, just taking in the scenery, and this is what they're seeing around them, right? Looking up, hundreds of little idols tucked into the walls, and not be far behind Jesus and his 12 disciples is a crowd. And so Jesus pauses, and he turns to his disciples, and little-known Bible fact, you can look this up later, Jesus turns to his disciples, and this is where the inspiration for the Family Feud game show comes from. <laughs> Google me on that later, much later. Um, so Steve, Jesus becomes Steve Harvey. 4,000 men surveyed. Top four answers are on the board. Next slide. Who do people say I am? And the disciples buzz in with their response. Next slide. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. And the disciples explain that people were undecided about who Jesus was. They at least honored him as a prophet. I mean, but doesn't that sound familiar? And that's still a common way that people think about Jesus. We just talked about that. He's a wise teacher. He's a great prophet. And think about this. None of those are insulting answers, are they? No one said he was a lunatic. No one said he was a liar. But when it comes down to it, crowds are interested in what they can get and less about who gives it. Healing, exorcism, food, a feel-good message. If I can get any of that, does it matter where it comes from? But it does matter. And Jesus knows this, but do his disciples. So Jesus moves in, narrows the survey, and he polls just his twelve. Verse 29, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Next slide. Before we hear this answer, who remembers the book, Are You My Mother? You remember that one? Aww. A little bird is hatched right as his mama has flown away. 
uh, to get his first little meal ready. And when he cracks through his shell, his mom isn't there. He flies around trying to find his mother, and he asks everyone he meets, next slide, he asks a kitten, a hen, a dog, a cow, are you my mother? Are you my mother? No to all, of course. So the bird hops along, and he even considers an old car, a tugboat, a plane, even a tractor, and none are his mother. Finally, the tractor returns him to his nest way up in a tree, just as his mama flies back. And before the little bird can ask, the mama bird says, next slide, do you know who I am? <laughs> and for the first time in this little bird's life, after a long day of searching and finding no one who could be his mother, he now knows for sure. Yes, I know who you are, said the baby bird. You are not a kitten or a hen or a dog or a cow or a boat. You are a bird and you are my mother. And like the little bird looking for his mama, the Bible then is the account of a search, not for a mother, but for a Messiah. It is the long wait for the answer to the question that has been asked ever since Adam and Eve. Are you the Messiah? Genesis 3.15 shines a ray of hope and begins the wait for a Messiah when God promises Adam and Eve that a descendant would come who would crush Satan's head. After her son Cain murders Abel, things aren't going so well, uh, Eve names her next son Seth, which means appointed, hinting at her hope that he would answer the question, are you my Messiah? Seth would not be the Messiah, but from his descendants, the Messiah was promised. And every book in the Old Testament is like the little bird on a search. Is it Seth? Is it Abraham? Samson, Samuel, David, Solomon, any of the kings of Israel or Judah? And the Old Testament ends without the Messiah, but pointing to him. And then the New Testament opens with each gospel, declaring the answer, he's here. Jesus is the Messiah. So in response to Jesus' question, who do you, my disciples, say that I am? Peter gets it exactly correct. Go, Peter. You are the Messiah. And Matthew's account includes son of the living God, which is particularly important considering where they were. They were surrounded by hundreds of dead stone idols of gods. Your Bible might read Christ in the Greek. It's anointed, which is what you would do to begin the reign of a priest or a king. Anoint them with oil. That's the second time Messiah has been used in Mark's gospel. The first time is in chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God. Peter has answered not only Jesus' question, but the disciples' question as well. I mean, think back. Back to chapter 4, it was about eight months before this, when the storm raged on that lake and around them, and Jesus stood in the boat, and he rebuked the wind and the waves. Peace be still, he says. Immediately, the storm calmed, and what had the stunned disciples asked? Who is this? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. That question needed to be answered, and all the events which followed, like Jesus healing the blind man in stages, Jesus was allowing the disciples to gradually come to see. 
You are not Elijah. You are not Jeremiah or John the Baptist or Moses. You are the one we've all been waiting for and looking for since Genesis 3. You are the Messiah. And like today, the people think Jesus is a good man, a wise teacher, a great healer or a prophet. But Peter has connected the dots from across history to what he's seen Jesus do, and he's come to the most important truth anyone can speak. Jesus is the Christ. What happens next seems odd then, but it's not the first time it's happened. Verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone. Shh. (laughs) This big aha moment. Don't tell anyone. And you would think, This was the go tell it on the mountain moment for sure. I mean, literally, they're at the base of the highest peak in Israel. Wouldn't this be the moment to send them out again in pairs? This time not healing, but proclaiming, he's here. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. The Messiah is finally here. But instead, Jesus strictly charges them not to say a word. Why? Remember Pastor Joe's message last week about the account of the blind man? Jesus allows them to see, but he healed them in stages. First he sees, but what happened? The people weren't quite clear yet. They're like what, remember? They're like trees, yeah, they're like trees walking. And So Jesus touches him again, so his sight is fully restored. The disciples are seeing Jesus for who he is, but they don't understand yet what that means. They need a second touch. And this is what Jesus goes on to give because you can declare that Jesus is the Messiah, but that's not the full message. This is a, but wait, there's more moment. Verse 31, he began to teach, not tell, teach. That means Jesus is going into the word and explaining in detail so they'll understand something crucial. And what did he teach? That the son of man must suffer many things. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. This is a title that they knew. Again, what's the best commentary on the New Testament? Old Testament. Hey, good job. That was fast. The Old, of course, and this is from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel prophesied about a human figure who would come in the clouds of heaven and approach the Ancient of Days, that's God, and the Ancient of Days is sitting on a throne, and this one, like a Son of Man, given a glory, and authority and sovereign power so that all the world worships him. Daniel prophesies that the kingdom of the Son of Man will be everlasting and that it'll never be destroyed. So maybe that's what Peter had in mind when he said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the one Daniel told us about, the all-powerful, the all-conquering revolutionary who would end the Roman Empire and free Jerusalem. And you can feel their enthusiasm as Peter makes this great confession, this declaration. What a moment their hope is building. What a time to be alive. But Jesus is bringing the whole counsel of God's word together so they can see. And he gives them reminders from Isaiah as well as Daniel when he continues and says that he will be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed after three days rise again. Peter declared the best news. Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus follows up with the worst news. He's going to suffer, be rejected, and then killed? How could they process this? Listen, listen. If we don't know 
the whole word of God, then we too will be stunned or worse, completely ignorant of who Jesus truly is. If we don't accept the word of God, we'll fill in the blanks with our own picture of who Jesus is. Because being the Messiah came with a promise, a terrible reality of what was to come. Didn't the disciples know what Isaiah had said about him? That he'd be pierced and crushed and punished and wounded? He'd be oppressed, he'd be afflicted like a lamb being led to the slaughter? That it would be the stripes on his back? That would bring our healing? But they only see the person and they're not connecting to the full plan of the gospel. I don't even think they heard the last part of what Jesus said, and after three days rise again. Jesus didn't speak to them in parables like he had done before. This time, Mark says, verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. No parables, just plain, clear teaching. But they can't wrap their minds around it still. They're confused, not about the person. They know who he is, but the plan, that doesn't compute. Jesus is speaking clearly, and what does Peter do? And Peter, <laughs> Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> uh, Jesus, so a word, please. <laughs> and fresh from buzzing in with the right answer about who Jesus is, Peter, filled with overconfidence, doesn't just have a moment with Jesus. Mark says he rebukes him. <laughs> Jesus. He rebukes Jesus. <laughs> the one Peter had only a moment ago identified as the long-awaited Messiah, the Lord God Almighty, the Word become flesh. Peter cannot bring these realities together, that Jesus is the Messiah, is the best news ever, that he must suffer and die. No, that cannot be. So Peter rebukes the one who rebuked the storm and wind that day when he tried to walk on water. That word is the same, epitomao, literally, to warn by instructing. Peter is going to school Jesus. He doesn't get far because Jesus stops him. And listen, listen to who Jesus has in his sight when he stops Peter's schooling. Verse 33, Jesus turned, picturing this, Peter, Jesus, Jesus turned and looked, and underline that word in your Bible. We're going to get back to it in a minute. Jesus turned and he looked at his disciples. What does Jesus do? It's the same word, epitomao, again. And he rebuked Peter. What on earth could Peter possibly have been trying to say? What rationale was he coming up with? to set Jesus straight. Jesus said, I must suffer, be killed, be raised on the third day. And Peter says, no, no way, no. That isn't how it needs to be. Matthew's gospel records Peter saying, may God grant you better than that. And listen, isn't this the basic idea of what the world still says today? You deserve better than that. Nothing's more important than your fulfillment. Take care of yourself. It's tempting, isn't it? Actually, What's so wrong with wanting to be happy and satisfied and safe and fulfilled, right? I mean, <laughs> is there anything really wrong with that? It's just that that's not the way of Christ. So Mark says Jesus turns and he looks at his disciples. He looks at his disciples. That's Judas. <laughs> and 
And the rest of the 12, we know Jesus was tempted in every way that we're tempted, and yet he did not sin. Peter is no doubt trying to show Jesus his idea of a better way, a plan for the Messiah that didn't include rejection and suffering. But Jesus sees his disciples, and it is with them in mind that he forcefully stops Peter from going any further. Jesus has always had the bigger mission in his mind. Not only that, his concern and his compassion for his flock is always his priority. They might have started to rally around Peter. And isn't that how all false religions begin? They might have had in mind a person named Jesus, but they did not have the plan of Jesus. Jesus might be Messiah, but he's going to be reimagined as their kind of Messiah, and Jesus won't have it. In fact, I think that whatever it was that Peter was going to say, it reminded Jesus of another conversation when he was tempted at the beginning of his ministry. You know, Satan never denied who Jesus was. He tempted Jesus to do what? Alter the plan. So Jesus rebukes Peter, and he says, get behind me, and he doesn't name Peter. He says what? Satan. Literally, this reads, get out of my sight. Wow. Jesus is fully aware, fully aware of a spiritual battle going on around him. I mean, think where they're standing. They are standing at the foot of the temples to the gods of Satan's armies, surrounded by enemy territory, literally in the region where the Nephilim, the demonic beings that cohabitated with humans in an attempt to corrupt humanity. And Jesus' rebuke of Peter was a recognition. There was a battle present, and the disciples had no clue. Like blind men, they were still seeing people as if they were trees. They needed to fully see. And only Jesus could give them complete sight. Peter spoke the truth about the person of Jesus. He's the Messiah, but the plan, the mission of the Messiah, he was only seeing blurry trees. Paul teaches that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Rulers, authorities, powers of dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So Jesus speaks firmly and plainly, no parables, so Peter and the disciples don't miss it. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Oh, what a gut punch. That's exactly Jesus' intent. The word in the Greek, epistrepho, the King James really captures it well. You don't savor, it says. You don't have a taste for what God wants. Listen, this is a much-needed reminder there is a way that seems right to a man, but that way ends in death. Peter's way seemed right to him. It seemed right to protect Jesus. It seemed right to step in just after having proclaimed the greatest truth. I mean, he was on a roll. He was with the right group, with the right leader. He had the right passion, but what he had in mind, Peter's concerns, they were human. And Jesus calls it for what it is, satanic. You know something? The world just cannot bear this kind of distinction. The way of Jesus, the way of the Messiah, is far more exclusive and intolerant than most are willing to accept. It's harsh, is it, to say that Peter was satanic? Yeah. But is it harsh to yank your child abruptly away out of traffic? Do you pause to discuss your child's feelings <laughs> before suggesting what they might want to reconsider and step away? No! You hit it hard! Get out! You're in danger! 
You're going to die. Jesus didn't hold back from being harsh because Jesus was on a laser-focused mission. His disciples in his sight. And he was preparing his disciples to do the same, to accept the person of Christ. And he was modeling for them that kind of exclusivity, that kind of focus. This is what it's going to take, and this is what's going to happen next. To accept the person of Christ without also his plan is not accepting him at all. It's satanic. Jesus knew what was ahead. He knew the cost. And Peter was not only jeopardizing himself, he was in jeopardy of leading the disciples away from the truth. In his mind, Peter was standing up for the man that he loved. He had given up his career to follow him. Why couldn't Jesus be the Messiah and also avoid pain and suffering? I mean, is that such a bad idea? But don't, don't we think like that too? <laughs> I mean, if God is God, why all the suffering? If God is God... Why do bad things happen to good people? If Jesus is the Messiah, why can't everyone just come to him the way they like? Isn't being good and doing good good enough? That's not the mind of God. That isn't the mind of Christ. And Peter, Jesus speaks as plainly to us today as he did to Peter 2,000 years ago because his mission was greater than the emotional desires of the moment. Jesus stands between Peter and the disciples and he rebukes him, get behind me, Satan. Because the only thing Jesus wants in front of him is his mission. From the highest praise to the crushing rebuke, Peter gets it and loses it just as quickly. Peter wanted Christ without the cross. And Jesus sets him straight. That's not going to happen, and it's satanic to think otherwise. But wait, there's more. While the disciples were still trying to grasp that the Messiah must suffer, and Peter is no doubt reeling still from being rebuked. Jesus once again turns this time to the lingering crowd and he invites them to hear the whole story. What details could Jesus add? How could he further explain what had to happen? If Peter thought the idea of a suffering Messiah was terrible, wait till he hears what's going to happen next. <laughs> Jesus is going to say something to the whole crowd, and what Jesus says next is part of the gospel. And if you're going to accept Jesus the person, you're going to have to accept the plan. And like the musts that Jesus taught them, he would suffer, be rejected, be killed. Jesus has some musts for anyone who would take the name of Jesus. Verse 34, Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, must take up their cross, must follow me. You know, we're inclined to connect Christ with, with the cross, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't know otherwise. It's as much of our understanding of who Jesus was as Jesus and the manger. But in the first century, no one would have expected words like this from a man like Jesus. It's unlikely. There was a person in the crowd, though, who hadn't seen a Roman cross and a criminal screaming in pain and agony as they hung, dying a gruesome death. Some may even have seen that criminal carry his own cross to a spot where a Roman soldier would nail him to it. Think about this. That crowd was full of men, women, and children. If there were parents and they were near their children, when Jesus began to talk, death talk like this in front of their kids, I think they would have covered their kids' ears, maybe turned away. I guess he's not making any more bread or fish, right? 
When Jesus called for the crowd to come closer to his inner circle, do you think anyone expected to hear words like this? The crowds had come for another miracle. Maybe a few wanted to hear some inspiring words, but this, what kind of talk is this? What kind of invitation is this? It doesn't sound like the, the way to increase your following and your membership. What Jesus is offering isn't happiness and fulfillment or prosperity or healing. The message of the Messiah isn't raise your hand, come forward, sign a card, attend church. No. And it's not just follow me. It's follow me exactly where I'm going, and Jesus was heading to a cross. So this is the invitation to self-denial. It's the invitation to cross-bearing and obedience, because unlike Peter, who had merely human concerns, Jesus had in mind the concerns of God. And he continued to teach them because they needed to hear the truth. And we do today. You want to save your life? Listen. And Jesus clarifies the message, verse 35. Whoever wants to save, their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For me and for the gospel. In other words, Jesus is saying you can't have me without my message. The person and the plan, they come together. The person is Jesus, the Messiah that Peter had recognized. The plan was the gospel, and that gospel has a cost. If you're going to be a disciple for Christ, the cost is full surrender to the cross. And here's what's at stake, our very souls. And Jesus asks here now two rhetorical questions. Verse 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? It's, it's no good. <laughs> or, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The answer, there's nothing. Nothing to exchange for the soul. Listen carefully to how Jesus describes the connection and the consequences of accepting who he was as a person and his teaching. Verse 38, if anyone is ashamed, side-eye to Peter, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, guys, listening, right? In this adulterous and sinful generation, is he talking about us? And we're here with you, Jesus. The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Two things. One, Peter never forgot these words. Peter hadn't recognized this truth when he rebuked Jesus because he was immature. He filled with pride. Immature in his baby little faith and filled with pride because he recognized who Jesus was. Peter has a long way to go. He's going to stumble again. He'll even deny Jesus. But ultimately, what will Peter, Peter do? He's going to accept the person and the plan, Jesus the Messiah, the complete package. And he will write these words. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be, what? Ashamed. But praise God that you bear the name. And secondly, in this account, Jesus prophesies not only that he will suffer and die and rise again in three days, but that he will come again in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Listen, this is the resurrection and the second coming of Christ right here in one succinct prophetic passage. That's the message of the gospel. I think we're in danger of being like Peter. We identify with him, don't we? He's our kind of guy. Duh. <laughs> and we kind of feel good when he blows it, like, I would probably blow it too. I identify with Peter. Do you think Peter thought, hey, that's me. 
when Jesus spoke about an adulterous and sinful people? Would Peter have ever thought of himself as someone who was ashamed of Jesus? Would you? Would I? No, not until Jesus rebuked him. And here's what gripped me in this account. Jesus wouldn't leave Peter in his shame. He confronted it. He rebuked him. He pointed him to the truth, the brutal, the shocking, but needed truth. You are no follower of Christ if you won't follow me to the cross. Could Peter imagine the reality of the cross yet? Not really. But that gut punch, it rebuked him and it knocked that breath out of him so that he could be filled with the breath that he needed more, the breath of life. What Peter would eventually understand is what I pray that you grasp, that we all grasp today. Remember what Jesus said, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Judgment is coming. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that Christ would come from heaven with his holy angels in flaming fire to take retribution on those who do not obey the gospel. This is a warning and it's an invitation and it's no different today than it was 2,000 years ago in the cliffs of Caesarea Philippi with the little gods and the little crowds and the little opinions of immature and prideful disciples. Choose this day who you will serve. Jesus is before us today. He's looking past Satan and to each of us. It was me that he went to the cross for. It was for you as well. And Paul would later write that the only thing that he would preach was the cross and Christ crucified. He was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cost of being a disciple is denying yourself, your ideas of who Jesus is. Accept the truth take the cross and actually follow him the world behind you the opinions behind you your hopes your desires how you think things should be all behind you the cross and the cross only before you and as we close in a moment we're going to reflect on that cross christ went there for me for you he shed his blood he gave his body for you. That's our Messiah. This is the Jesus we follow. Meet him here. And if it's for the first time, or if it's time to recommit your life to him, say it now in your heart. I stand, I follow, I surrender my life to you, Jesus, Messiah. All I am is yours. There is no Christianity without the cross. It's the cross that makes it Christian, and it's the cross that we come to now in our worship, and communion is going to be available to you in the back of the sanctuary. And I'd like you to stand with me, and we're just going to sing a closing prayer. So would you please stand? I know you, many of you already know these words, so just sing along with me. I have decided to follow Jesus. I to follow Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus. The cross before me, the cross before me, the world behind me, 
The cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me. Father God, we do come before you, acknowledge you as Jesus, our Christ, our Messiah. And I ask God that today would be the day that we commit and recommit our lives to you, to what it truly means to follow you as Jesus, our Messiah. We love you. We thank you for going to the cross, taking our shame and nailing it there, for giving your body and your blood for each of us. Help us to grasp that and truly surrender to you today in Jesus' name.